Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean McCarthy. I'm your host, and I write the blog on Pickled, where I talk about life after alcohol from my very first day of sobriety six years ago. And one reader of my blog, who now has a blog of her own, and we connected through the blog world, is Mary. She writes a blog called Life Without Vodka Rocks. And Mary has quite an interesting story to tell and not an easy one. She faced an issue that every parent dreads, seeing her children caught in the deadly grip of drug addiction. And her own alcohol use might have paled in comparison and maybe even appeared to help as she got her family through that time of crisis. But years later, she turned to face her own problematic relationship with alcohol and began a journey of sobriety. So that is her story in Life Without Vodka Rocks. And Mary's here today to uh, talk to us more about this. Hi, Mary. Hi, Jean. So nice to hear your voice because we've been sort of virtual buddies for years, but this is the first time... We've actually spoken. Isn't that silly? Yes, it is. Yeah. Like, why don't we and just I, pick up the phone? <laughs> yeah, I know. What, what's up with that? <laughs> well, thank goodness for this podcast, or I'd like probably be exactly. a hermit. So exactly. it keeps me connected. <laughs> so I'm exactly. going to ask you to just start by telling us your story. And I know that your story goes back long before your own drinking was on your radar. So, um, uh, and I know it's emotional to talk about it even still years later. So, um, uh, I know it's difficult, but I know you're willing to do that because you know how important it is. So with gratitude, I'm going to ask you to, to share your story with us. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm going to go way, way back to the beginning. Um, you know, to, to where the seeds, I believe of my, um, my issues with alcohol were sown, which is, you know, as, as most people are familiar with is is my childhood um i was the fourth of eight children in a a lower middle class suburban family my maternal grandmother whom i never met was an alcoholic as were some of my mother's siblings um but growing up alcohol was never a part of our family or holiday celebrations um there was one bottle of uh I don't know, BV or something in a cabinet over the refrigerator that was dusted off and poured over ice for some elderly uncles once a year at Christmas time, I think. But that's that's all I really remember as far as alcohol is concerned in my childhood. Um, my father was hospitalized um, when I was seven or eight, and I never, um, I never. I don't recall being told why at the time. Um, I do remember visiting him on a Sunday in the cafeteria and having ice cream sundaes. Most of my most of my childhood memories revolve around food, one way or another. But um, I did. I was told later that it was um, he was hospitalized due to depression and he had been um, self medicating with alcohol. So that was. Um, something I, I don't remember specifically being told, but it seems to be part of the, the you know the family history. Um, but I grew up in a, a large, pretty dysfunctional family. Um, there was never enough money or personal space or privacy, um, but there was a lot of chaos and anger, and corporal punishment was the rule of the day in, in the family I grew up in. Both of my parents, um, especially my mother, um, were depressed and medicated for it without um, dealing with the root causes. Um, I used to say my mother slept with Prince Valium every night, but she uh, was deeply religious, which I kind of have come to understand as her addiction. Um, we were raised uh, very very strictly in terms of our religion, and we were raised to believe that it was it was an all or nothing type of uh, belief system. It wasn't a cafeteria style religion. It was all or nothing. And um, being raised in an authoritarian home, um, the the family motto was "Here are the rules, and there's the door." So one by one, um, all eight of us left home. And conventional religion, pretty pretty young, very systematically and very young. Um, 
my sisters and I, there are five girls and three boys in my family. My sisters and I were raised with the expectation that we would um, graduate from high school, get jobs, probably secretarial jobs, um, get married, and then, you know, quit work to start having a baby a year. Uh, unfortunately for my, my mother, none of us fulfilled her, her dreams for us, but um, I did I did marry young just because of uh, circumstances, but um, I met my husband when I was 16, and he was a he was a an 18 year old freshman in college, so he was you know he was my first love, and we've been together ever since. Um, when I turned 18, I remember um, that was the legal drinking age uh, at the time. My mother sat me down and told me that dad was an alcoholic and that I needed to be aware of that as it pertained to my own drinking. And at that time, alcohol wasn't very significant in my life. Um, maybe my boyfriend at the time and I would have a, you know, a beer or two on a Friday or Saturday night, and that was, that was about it. Um, we married before I turned 20, and we had our first baby when I was 21. Um, my husband is a teacher and back then, um, teachers weren't paid very much and I stayed home. So money was very, very tight. So, um, alcohol was a, a very rare treat. Um, we had two more babies by the time I was 27. Um, and at that time finances were a little better, but we still didn't drink much or often our lives revolved around, you know, having little kids. So through those years, I, I worked some part-time jobs, uh, mostly from home, um, and eventually we moved to our current home, and I started working as a teacher aide at the elementary school my kids went to. At that point, we were probably drinking more, more regularly, and it was then that I began to suspect that I probably liked drinking more than other people did. Uh, back in, I want to say, 1995, I became concerned enough that I just decided to take a month off of drinking just to prove to myself that I could. And um, I never had the intention of quitting forever, but I just, I, something, I knew something was off in terms of how much I like to drink. So I, I did succeed in taking, I, I think, about a month or six weeks off um, and then just resumed, you know, my, my normal drinking schedule. Uh, our happy little life continued on uneventfully. You know, we had problems like any any family has problems. Nothing is perfect. But um, our son, our firstborn, graduated from college and he got married and began a great career. And um, our young, our two younger daughters were honor roll students and they played sports. Um, they had leads in plays and um, high school musicals. Um, one took piano lessons. They both took dance lessons, and we were there for every every event, every concert, every play, every open house, every parent-teacher conference. We were just, you know, a normal, just a normal family living what we believe to be the American dream. Um, but by 2005, our older daughter, who was 22 at the time, uh, began a long circuitous road to addiction, beginning with a couple of episodes of alcohol poisoning at college. Um, she flunked out after two years and um, enrolled in cosmetology school, where she graduated, um, got a job at a salon, and had lots of cash on hand from tips. Um, her behavior began, uh, became more and more erratic, and she finally admitted that she had a problem. Um, and at that point, she would use anything she could get her hands on. She wasn't very particular um, about uh, her, her drug of choice. It didn't matter. She would just use whatever came her way. So we did, you know, the best we could for her, and at that point um, that was intensive outpatient counseling for her. But um, as that summer progressed, it became apparent that that was not going to be enough to, to help her. So um, we eventually had to take her off our health insurance to get her into rehab because we couldn't afford the cost of private, um, you know, private inpatient treatment for her. So she finally um, did 
get a bed in our local uh, county hospital and um, went into rehab for about eight weeks, was discharged and came home, and the cycle started all over again. So um, her younger sister had enrolled in college and almost immediately withdrawn and was floundering and exhibiting some of the same dysfunctional behaviors. So we decided that um, we'd had enough. They were young adults. They were able-bodied and intelligent, and they needed to grow up and move out and get jobs and become productive members of society. And we were pretty confident that that's, you know, that was the right course to take with them. So they did. They did move out um, in January of uh, the following the following winter. But all that time, um, my drinking was steadily increasing. Uh, I didn't want to be in my own head. I didn't want the daughters I had. I was angry, and my heart was just broken. I, I just felt cheated, especially because we had been really good parents, and they just seemed determined to, to just want to throw their lives away. But they did move out, and things were quiet for, for a little while. But within about six months' time, all of a sudden money issues started cropping up for them. Um, one daughter told us that she'd been robbed at gunpoint after cashing her check. And I'm making air quotes about around robbed at gunpoint. Um, their rent money would disappear on its way to the landlords, or they had um, – astronomical heating bills that they couldn't pay for and you know every problem revolved around money and our ability to solve it um so ultimately they were evicted in october of that year and they both fast talked their way back into our house promising it was temporary we didn't know it at the time um because we had zero experience with you know what heroin looks like or acts like or you know we didn't know anything about heroin, but they were both full-blown heroin addicts. So soon, um, every communication with them was about money. Um, I just got angrier and angrier, and my husband's health was beginning to suffer. During this time, um, I was drinking even more. Um, earlier in the day on weekends, and um, I would often black out and make promises to myself that I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't let that happen again. Um, I'd draw a line in the sand and make a set of rules for myself and almost immediately break them concerning my drinking. Um, a few months later, I, I insisted that we begin therapy to help us um, deal with what was happening in our family since what we were doing clearly wasn't turning them around, and um, I was really, really scared at that point about my husband's health and the damage that they had done to his health, and um, he was far more important to me than, than they had become. So we started counseling, and things were, were beginning to change, and by that I mean we were beginning to change. So, um, you know, there, things were starting not to turn around, but, you know, change was happening, but... Um, what happened was um, our girls turned themselves into the police. They had gotten involved in some illegal activity and turned themselves into the police and were enrolled in our town's drug court, um, and that was in the fall of 2007. So since about uh, September or October of 2007, they have both turned themselves around, and they have been clean and sober for almost 10 years. But my drinking habits were well established, and I, I continued drinking well more than was healthy for several more years. Uh, I knew I was playing Russian roulette with my health, and I was really scared. Um, ironically, the only time I could escape the diatribe going on in my head was when I would drink. That was my, my medicine, my escape hatch, my, um, my self-care. That was all I really knew how to do. I would fantasize about something forcing me to quit drinking, like a health issue that wasn't life-threatening or, um, you know, nothing too dire, but I, I really desperately wish that, that a doctor would say, you know, you, you really should quit. You really need to quit. 
but because never in a million jillion years did I think I'd be able to do it on my own. One of one of my last big drunks was a few weeks before I ultimately quit. It was our youngest daughter's wedding. And by that point, I'd lost the ability to moderate with any reliability. Um, and the drinks that I consumed during the reception kind of snuck up on me and hit me like a ton of bricks. And by the time we left the reception, I was smashed. Um, I was slurring my words in the car on the way home. I was, you know, desperately trying to seem, you know, seem sober, but I don't think I was fooling anyone. Um, And I stumbled and, and almost fell getting undressed that night and felt pretty crappy the next day. So about two weeks later, um, on a typical Sunday, I went to bed after having again, yet again blacked out while um, watching television. And the next morning, I was re-watching the show from the night before, just in case my husband might ask me what happened, and you know, I wanted to make sure <laughs> I had the plot line right. Um, but I had, the only thing I, I, I can describe it as was an epiphany. And I just knew as as clearly as I knew my name or my children or my husband's name, I knew something horrible was going to happen if I didn't stop drinking. I knew that my life was going to end early and very likely unpleasantly if I didn't quit. I remember sitting on the couch in my family room, and I just remember my blood turning to ice because I couldn't unthink that thought. I couldn't unknow what I knew. And I just I just decided right then and there that I had to stop drinking forever. And that was August 18th, 2014. Um, I didn't know anything about any kind of resources. I didn't want to go the 12-step route. I didn't I I didn't know where to turn, so I turned to my laptop and searched online for support groups and resources. Um, Ultimately, I found um, Belle's um, blog and her uh, her 100-day challenge, which I signed up for, and I signed up for daily emails with her. I found the blog. Her her blog is called Tired of Thinking About Drinking. Uh, yep. yeah. <laughs> That's a, that was a good one. Um, I found the bubble hour. I found Mrs. D. I found your blog, Unpickled. Um, I started a blog of my own just for accountability, and um, you gave me the secret handshake to get into the uh, private Facebook group that we both belong to in the spring of 2015. And that's been my main support because I don't have anyone in my day-to-day life that's, you know, made the same decision for the same reasons. Um, I have gotten together with a, a fellow uh, local um, member of the same Facebook group. Um, hi, Susan. <laughs> and uh, we have plans to get together more this summer, and that's been fanta- fantastic. And we're also getting together um later this summer with another member of the same group that I've met and her husband. Hi, Rochelle. And uh, through it all, my husband's been super supportive. He he was gobsmacked when I told him that I, I was going to quit drinking. I, I waited a few days to tell him. He had no idea what was going on in my head um, or how I struggled. He offered to stop drinking at home if it you know if it was going to make things too hard for me he offered to do anything that i needed in, in by way of supporting me on this journey and uh, he's just been a wonderful sounding board sympathetic ear um he's you know he still drinks but he's a normie he he can take it or leave it um which i don't understand but um He's just been a fantastic support, and my older daughter uh, has been a, a real support and a, and a cheerleader and a confidant, and she takes almost as much pride and excitement in my milestones as I do. Um, but since since I've quit drinking, um, I've welcomed a new, a new granddaughter, our fourth granddaughter. 
uh, helped one daughter through a miscarriage, another one through a, a very, very terrifying cancer scare, and also celebrated her graduation from college, um, have helped the son through the loss of his job and a major car accident. And I've seen my mother through her final illness and death and did it all sober, stone cold sober. Um, I recently celebrated a 1,000 days sober, and I'm rounding the corner on three years of sobriety. Um, I'm just, I never stop being amazed at how how amazing life is now and how, you know, looking forward to a, a cup of decaf and <laughs> and a silly romance novel at the end of the day is like, uh, it's it's what keeps me going. Or a bowl of ice cream at night where I look forward to that every bit as much, if not more, than I used to look forward to the drinks that I would have. Um, I'm just learning so much about myself still and learning how to navigate a drinking world sober. And my plan is to, to stay sober for the rest of my, the rest of my life. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Now tell me something, because when you say, like, you look forward to a bowl of ice cream, you know, as much or more as you used to look forward to a glass of wine, I, I completely know what you mean. And yet, when I was drinking every day, I would have, like, rolled my eyes at that and thought, <laughs> like, how is that even possible, you know? The only yeah. thing, because that's where addiction and like daily drinking maybe more so than binge drinking but it really takes you to that point where the only thing you want to celebrate or commiserate or relax or unwind or ramp up or just be with is a glass of wine it starts to become the only thing you can focus on so did you ever think that you would feel that way does it seem amazing to you now it's absolutely amazing and I um I I never would have I never would have believed it. I would have thought, you know, if, if if anyone were to tell me that you will not believe how much you enjoy your life or what you look forward to now, um, I would think that they were full of BS or flat out lying to me, just flat out lying. When you quit, were you scared that you would not be any fun or enjoy anything anymore? I was terrified. I had, I felt yeah. like I, I was. I was flying without a net. I had no idea what my life would look like without alcohol. I had not socialized or even gotten through a weekend other than during my pregnancies without alcohol. So it had been about 30, you know, 30 years almost since I had had an alcohol-free weekend. I I didn't know who I would be without alcohol. Now, do you think because you saw your daughters go through such extreme and dangerous and criminal addictions. I mean, their criminal activity is like you, you can't have a serious drug addiction really without being connected to difficult things. Did that sort of like whitewash your own addiction? Did it make it harder for you to see it as problematic, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, my drug of choice was legal. You know, I could I could march into a store and buy it and hold my head high and and uh, not be quote hurting anybody by you know purchasing my drug of choice and it also enabled me to um, I guess in a way by pointing fingers at them um, it enabled me to take my mind off what I was doing to myself. That's a very honest thing to realization about yourself um that can't be easy for you as a mom to to you know admit to yourself that you're doing that um no definitely and and as a matter of fact the place that the agency that we went to for counseling to um it was really because we were um it was really kind of codependency counseling Mm -hmm. we were addicted to trying to fix them um, part of that, there was a, a drug and alcohol counseling agency, and part of uh, being a client there was, since I was the one who made the phone call, I had to go in after we'd been connected to this agency for a year. I had to go in for a, kind of a, an assessment, and the counselor was asking me questions about my alcohol usage. Now, mind you, this was 
this was probably 10 years ago, and she she thought I might have an, uh, a problem with alcohol, and I was so offended. <laughs> like, whoa, 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 slow your roll. We're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about them. <laughs> um, did you ever get past that? Um, did I ever get past being offended? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, or did you just push that off and not go there? Well, I just defended, you know, I defended my drinking, you know, mm-hmm. as is not problematic. Um, mm-hmm. But, and and she kind of grudgingly backed off of, you know, that whole, I mean, she went there and then she, she immediately backed off when I was like, whoa, you know, wait a minute, I don't have a problem with alcohol. We're here, you know, I'm here because of them, not because of me. My life is 100% functional. But that I used to tell my husband it was like there was a big sticky ball of thoughts in my brain and everything like that. Um, it was like it was almost like a ball of post-it notes in my brain. <laughs> Every kind of encounter like that kind mm-hmm. of got added to that big sticky ball of thoughts. And, and mm-hmm. another thing that, that got added to that big sticky ball of thoughts was um, I had gone to my doctor just for an annual physical and my blood pressure is typically very low and this was after a confrontation with one of my daughters I can't remember the circumstances but when I went to the doctor it was directly afterward and my blood pressure was elevated and I kind of blurted out well you know this is you know this is why I'm upset this is what what's going on at home and he he asked me if I had alcohol in the house and I said yes and he's like, well, don't you think that's hypocritical? If your daughters are struggling with addiction, why would you keep alcohol in the house? And I said, let me tell you, doctor, neither one of them has ever reached for a glass of Cabernet when they were, you know, stressed out. That's not their drug of choice. And, again, here I am defending, you know, my drinking. Um, but that that kind of stuck in my craw, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the fingers being pointed at me. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately – I mean, all of those little conversations and all of those um, instances where I, you know, had too much to drink and promised myself that I wouldn't or said or did something that I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't particularly proud of, that all kind of added to that big sticky ball of thoughts in my brain that I could no longer rationalize around or peer around and, and push to the side. It was just too big. There was, you know, there was no getting around it anymore. And I've learned, you know, just not that long ago through my own recovery that the things that really push our buttons, like that really trigger us into anger or defensiveness are the things we most need to look at. Um, You know, if someone tells me my feet are too big, you know, I'll be like, oh, whatever. Yeah, they are, but I don't care. But boy, like, tell me, I don't know, that, I, I don't know, just, but some other thing that hits home for me. You know, that's uh-huh. what I really need to look at. Um, uh-huh. and, and so, like, even it's interesting that, it, you know, a doctor or a, a therapist can plant a seed like that. And they might have seen right away, okay, she's not ready to go there, but maybe this will help down the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for us now, as people that spend lots of time talking to other people and trying to help other people, sometimes, okay, when I first started blogging and talking to other people in recovery, I get kind of offended if, if someone was like, Oh, I think I drink too much, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I would encourage them, you know, well, you should try quitting. And then if they rejected that, I really take it personally. But now I kind of know, okay, well, they're just not ready to consider that. Or maybe they actually don't need to, but just knowing that even saying it is okay. Cause it plants a seed for later that maybe like you say, it's another post-it note on there. Sticky ball of thoughts <laughs> that <laughs> exactly. can help down the road. It's something to agitate on. Um, and I can hear the emotion in your voice as you spoke about your your epiphany that, like, for some people, they literally drive into a brick wall or, like, have, have a, something out of the blue that makes them, you know, have an awareness. But you and I had a very similar situation, like almost exactly the situation where it was sort of like drip, 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 or all these little signs over the years added up to like this huge moment of awareness that's 
it sounds like a high bottom. I mean, mm-hmm. what happened? What, what did you do? Well, nothing. <laughs> yeah. But I know exactly why you're so emotional because it is like you stopped yourself before you drove over the cliff, you know? Yep. And that, that feeling of like, of like seeing, I say it's like a puppy wandering into traffic and that moment you feel of like, oh, I've got to save it. Like for me, I felt like I was suspended animation in the air to save myself because I suddenly yep. saw what could happen and just had this understanding of like, I don't have to go there. Knowing yep. it is enough. And the downside to that is that other people don't see it. So maybe other people think that we've overcorrected or overreacted. Have you experienced that feedback at all from anyone? Um, not, not really. I mean, uh, I think my husband being as blindsided as he was, um, initially thought, which he, you know, he, he didn't say to me at the time, but he was like, what's the big deal? Why can't you just cut back? Like, why do you have to quit? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, ridiculous. Um, but I, I mean, the, the, nobody, really, nobody in my life that I, you know, shared my decision with went, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God you decided to quit. Right. It was more like, what? Why? You? How come? You know, like never? You're n- never going to drink again? You? You know, um, which offended me <laughs> a little bit. Like, what do you mean, you? You know, um, but I did not get, I did not get the, uh, I didn't get anybody questioning me really per se, but um, it was just, the, the only people that I really kind of shared honestly with, it was a very, very, very small group um, at first. And um, as time went by and I could get kind of some perspective and I could get a little more honest with myself and stop giving the, the politically correct version of why I decided to quit, you know, then I got more comfortable. And, and at that point, I think, the people in my life who who really know me well um, just accepted, you know, accepted m- my updated version of events, which was, you know, it it just wasn't going anywhere good. <laughs> it right. just wasn't. There was a trajectory there that was very, very disturbing. You know, I I also feel a little less of a need to sort of defend living alcohol free as as a woman of a certain age, I just turned 50. So, you know, menopause is just right on the horizon here. There's all these hormonal changes and gosh, it's so much easier without alcohol and our cancer rates drop and we look better and we feel better. And there's like, there's so many reasons why addicted or not going alcohol free. It's a really wonderful thing to do for yourself just from a health perspective at any Uh age, but especially as we, you know, get onto this grandma stage of life. Yeah. Um, I I want to go back and talk a little bit about your uh, daughter some more because you said that you had them living at home and were completely clued out that they were addict, not just using, but addicted to heroin. Um, now that you know what you know, what were the signs? Oh God, there were so many. Um, just uh. They couldn't. They couldn't hold jobs. My younger daughter had, I want to say, twelve jobs in eighteen months. I mean, because addicts are heroin addicts are um, very can be very charming and very persuasive and very manipulative. And so she could. I mean, and and you're talking bright young women. They were both honor roll students in school and. Our younger one had a had gotten a partial scholarship to college. I mean, they were they're really bright, articulate young women, and they could charm them their way into jobs. But you know, the cycle would be like, oh, you know, they they love the job at first, and then the boss is a jerk, and then the boss is an a hole, and then boom, out the door. You know, would last eh, six to six to twelve weeks maybe. Um, so there was that, just kind of. Um, Oh, 
there was always, always, always an issue with money. And it didn't have to be a lot of money. But it was, you know, oh, you know, could you spot me $10 for gas? Or I have to take this Excel course for my job, or I'm, I, they're, they're going to fire me if I don't take this course, but it's $100. And um, we, we were flim-flammed on a regular basis. And um, it, they, they wore us down to the point where um, we, we didn't know which end was up. I mean, every time that phone rang, I knew it was one of them needing something from us. And um, they, they mostly asked my husband because he, God love him, has a heart so big and so soft for his girls. Um, but his, his mom was a fixer, and he kind of inherited that tendency where I came from a law and order background. <laughs> you know, you did the crime, you did the time, and that was it. It was, you know, I, I didn't come from that same kind of soft kind of uh, family. So they would go to him for money, but it was a constant need for money. Um, they couldn't talk on their phones in front of us. You know, they would get up and have to leave the room, um, they took their purses everywhere, even, you know, just to go to the bathroom. They took their purses with them. They, um, I didn't know any of their friends. I mean, at that point they were, you know, 19 and 22, so it's not like they were teenagers. They each mm-hmm. managed to, you know, uh, I don't even know at that point if they were making their car payments or if we were making them for them. Or I, I mean, they, they were you know, just, we were basically probably, you know, paying most of their bills between them losing their jobs all the time. I mean, it it was a pretty short period of time, but it just seemed like a long, hellish, sweaty nightmare. But, I mean, I never saw needle tracks, um, although our older daughter, um, during the course of her addiction, probably lost between... Uh, close, probably close to 100 pounds. But she was also a part-time college student and had a steady boyfriend. I, you know, so there was this weird combination of function and dysfunction. They functioned just enough to, you know, kind of uh, stay below the radar, and um, and yet by the end, uh, they were they were both pretty pretty far gone. Um, you know, I knew if the two of them were together, they were up to no good. And I really, honestly, Jean, spoke very little to either one of them, even though they lived under our roof, because I quite honestly hated the sight of both of them. I hated them. They mm-hmm. they were barely recognizable as human beings. So um, what pushed us into therapy was um, finding out that our older daughter had been speedballing. Um, her best friend confided in me that she had been um, snorting heroin or snorting uh, cocaine to get uh, up and then shooting heroin to come back down. And uh, she had an episode of uh, irregular heartbeat. And I, I took her to the local emergency room and pulled the triage nurse aside and said, you, you got to help her. Like she's shooting heroin like 10 times a day and she's snorting cocaine. She's going to die. You've got to help her. And they sent her home with a heart monitor because she was, you know, over the age of consent. And, and mm-hmm. there were, you know, the HIPAA laws that they had to consider, the privacy laws. So that was the last straw for me. That was it. I, I was done. And I had a friend who had just started at this, um, drug and alcohol counseling agency as a CEO, and I I put in a an SOS call to her like this is what I just found out what 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 do we do? And she got us in to see their best counselor the next day. Um, but yeah, it's just you know it, it, they you know lack of attention to hygiene, always issues with money, always issues with money. Um, Oh God, I'm I'm blanking. But it, really, they they become, and it's it's little by little. It's not all at once. But they become less and less and less functional. And it got to the point where I I didn't trust either one of them. I would hide my purse, you know, every night when I got home from from school. Um, 
I'd hide my purse and then I'd forget where I hid it. I mean, I had to put it in a different hiding place because I, I wasn't confident that either one of them wouldn't find it and, and take whatever money I had. I was just, it was like living in an armed camp. I would lock, lock my bedroom before I left for, for work in the morning and lock uh, my husband's office um, because I, I, I didn't trust either one of them as far as I could throw them. Just as you're talking, Mary, like my stomach is doing flip-flops and my heart is clenching because I, I'm, I'm feeling as a mom, like this must have been such an intense 24-hour-a-day combination of anger and fear that you lived it in. Was. It and, was. It was. We um we were we would have conversations about like I mean it wasn't you know how are we going to pay for their college educations or how are we going to pay for a wedding it's like how are we going to pay for their funerals because that's the direction that's what we're going to have to I remember at at one point my my older daughter saying just this is how I want to live my life just leave me alone what do you care leave me alone yeah. Uh, that's how I can't imagine how much you love them. Now, this is, let's fast forward because this is in the past and right. um, difficult, horrible time. I mean, I feel physically ill just thinking about it and, and out of just pain as, you know, another woman and, and, and for them. Um, it's so sad, but the good news is that they have 10 years clean and sober yep. and um, did they go to, do they do 12 step? How, like, how do they stay sober? And I know that's their story to tell, but, um, did they in rehab, did they do 12 step program? Or are they in, in, um, in a program still or what do they do? Um, our older daughter went to, um, she was the one who went to the, the rehab at the County hospital. And then, <clears throat> um, ultimately she, after they were enrolled in drug court, she was sent to uh, a rehab in Pennsylvania where she spent uh, about four weeks. And then from there she went to um, what they call a um, three-quarter house, not instead of a halfway house. It was a three-quarter house in in, um, Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. And that was a really dysfunctional setting for her. She ended up um, showing up on our doorstep a few months later, and um, she was still a client of the drug court, and they uh, reassigned her to um, a local halfway house here in our hometown um, that had had like a great track record with uh, women who had issues with the law, but I think they had an 80 to 85 percent success rate in terms of their clients, you know, getting clean and staying clean and becoming. Um, you know, productive members of society. And so she was mandated to stay there for nine months, ended up um, staying for 16 at her own request. She didn't want to leave. But they did do 12-step meetings there. And um, so she she was involved um, in 12-step meetings for a while. She um, does not, you know, she doesn't participate in any kind of, um, you know, recovery program right now anymore. And our younger daughter did um, intensive outpatient. Um, she she did live with us, but she wasn't um, she wasn't yet 21. So um, again, we had the issue of being faced with the prospect of having to private pay for for rehab, which we couldn't do. So they they accommodated her with an intensive outpatient program, um, but she never did 12 uh, step. Um, you know, 12-step meetings or anything like that. So they both had very different paths. Um, But they've both, you know, they've both been able to stay stay clean and and sober. So was there any doubt in your mind that there's a genetic component to addiction? (laughs) Um, None whatsoever. I really do think (laughs) with my girls it was the perfect storm of – both of them had had you know kind of struggled with anxiety and depression as as um teenagers our older daughter was a very anxious kid um even as a little little kid um but there was anxiety there was depression i think they were self medicating um and it was the kind of perfect storm of genetics and their own 
um, their own emotional or you know mental health or emotional makeup and a little bit of money because you really just need a little bit of money for heroin. Mm-hmm. Not expensive. So, yeah, and they both feel that um, if it hadn't been their early 20s. Socially and academically and um, you were involved with parents. But a lot of those, you know, that sort of good girl syndrome, um, that is, I think, a foreshadowing of a propensity, propensity predisposition, anyway, for uh, for addiction, as I understand it. And maybe it kind of comes from a little bit of a codependent um behavior pattern that is, you know, inbred. It's how, it's how we were raised. It's how we raise our kids. And, um, and so it really, we, the people that we think are the last people to be susceptible are actually sometimes, through their achievements, <laughs> showing an unlikely disposition towards alcohol addiction, which um, is crazy to think about when, when we're also steeped in and what the culture teaches us, you know, yeah. addiction is all about. So you work very hard to shatter the shame and the stigma attached to addiction. You were telling me that you and your husband speak every year to parents and students about addiction. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, we have, um, my husband is a, is a, a teacher, a high school teacher. He's a, a coach and a student council advisor, and he's taught at the high school that he he teaches at for uh, about 30 years now. So he's he's very well known and very uh, well respected. But um, the, the high school that he teaches at does a very comprehensive um, orientation program for their incoming freshmen. And I want to say about seven or eight years ago, um, I wrote a. I wrote an essay that was published in our local paper about what we had been through with our girls and again trying to shatter the stigma of, you know, this is this is what the mother of drug addicts looks like and this is what a family that produced two drug addicts is like. It's a lot like your family. Um and I one thing led to another and um they um the high school administration asked us to speak to tell our story um, to the parents and the incoming freshmen, kind of a cautionary tale. So um, we we have been invited back, I, I think, for seven or eight years now, um, and we're we're heading back at the end of August this year. And we keep kind of trying to let them off the hook, like, hey, it's been several years, you know. I, is our story still relevant? And they're like, absolutely, uh, it's still relevant. So, um, yeah, we we have been very open and tell our story to um, to these incoming freshmen and their parents, and um, just by way of giving them some some idea um, as to what to look for. Because again, you know, what does what what does someone under the influence of heroin look like or act like? What what should I be looking for? Um, and we've um, we've spoken in in many different venues about our story, um, just because we know we're we're the lucky ones. I mean, our our kids both survived, and uh, a lot of families aren't 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 that lucky. So. We're so grateful to the agency that that you know we obtain counseling from that we we can't do enough to give back. So, in a way, it's um it's it's painful. It's um I, I like I said to you earlier, Jean. It's like ripping off a bandaid every year um, to tell that story again because the you know the wounds have healed, but the the scars are definitely there. Um, but it's cathartic too. It helps us, and and we, you know, people wait in line to talk to us afterward to thank us or to share a story about a family member that, you know, that they've never, never talked about to anyone else, and, and just to 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 erase the stigma and to um, to shed some light in some dark corners um, for people who who might be too ashamed to. Um, to speak about it, a, a situation in their family openly and honestly, it's it's just important to us to um, to give back. Did you feel shame 
about your daughter's addiction at the time that they were struggling yeah. with it? And, and when did that start to lift? When did, what changed for you that you went from feeling that way to seeing the importance of talking about it with other people? Um, what changed was really a counseling that we got. Um, we, one of the best things that we did for ourselves was um, we got involved in a, a parent support group um, through this agency. And it was just every Thursday night at 630, we would go and sit with other parents who were in exactly the same boat that we were. And, you know, again, it's the power of me too, where you can, you know, you can share openly and honestly and without shame. And it was kind of the one-two punch of um, getting excellent counseling from, you know, therapists who showed us that we couldn't fix them. We couldn't change their behavior. We couldn't, we couldn't love our kids better. And by trying to fix them, we, were, we could potentially be hastening their death. So to look at it from a completely, you know, different perspective, to look at the situation when, you know, especially my husband's instinct was, okay, we'll cover your bills this month, but next month you have to get a job. Next month you have, you know, um, to go from that to writing a contract and leaving it on the table for them. As of this date, we will do this. We will no longer do that. And, um, you know, they, we changed our behavior and in order for them to realize we meant business and they could no longer manipulate us, we had to change our behavior and stick to our guns. Um, so that, that really helped give us our power back. And, again, it was just those excellent counselors saying, you know, a lot of kids experiment with not necessarily heroin, but they experiment with drugs and alcohol as teenagers, and they – you know, and they grow up and move on and grow out of it. And your kids didn't. You know, your kids are sick. They're not bad. They're sick. Right. Um, yeah. So it helped reframe everything. And if they had everything. cancer, everyone would be bringing you casseroles. But when they have addiction, uh, it's a whole different ballgame, unfortunately. And I, I hope that we can change that by conversations like this, you know? I hope so. Um, uh, and I, actually, I know we are changing it. I know we are, but it'll take time. And um, I wonder, um, we only have a few minutes left. I told you this hour would go by so fast. And um, <laughs> You were right. That. <laughs> and um, I wonder, um, what words of encouragement do you have for other parents who um, are not only struggling with, with um, their kids' illness, whatever it is, um, and also, you know, if they know that they're coping unhealthily um, using drugs and or alcohol themselves, like what kind of encouragement do you have for people? Is it take care of one thing at a time or, I don't know, what, when parents line up to talk to you, what, what do you find yourself saying again and again? Just that I, I, we both urge them, you have to take care of yourselves. Like so many parents forego any, you know, any joy in their lives. It's almost like they're, they're punishing themselves for what their kids are, you know, have the choices that their kids have made. Um, they forego any kind of self-care or any kind of, I mean, I know Kevin, my husband and I felt like months would go by and we wouldn't laugh. Like it felt strange to laugh because we carried such a burden with us all the time. Um, but I would just urge parents, like, you get help for you. You, you know, your kids are going to do what they're going to do, or your, your child is going to do what he's going to do. You need to take care of yourself because if you get sick, um, you're not going to be any use to anybody. So you have to take care of yourself um, and get, get some help for yourself, you know, and in and, and getting stronger and in changing the way you react when they do, you know, X, Y, and Z. That is that is how change is going to happen. But you're doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is not going to be helpful to anybody. So your children grew up. They're safe. You got healthy. Your marriage has flourished. You have four granddaughters. Could you ever have foreseen such a happy ending to this story? Oh, no. Not, not mm-hmm. when we were in the 
not when we were in the depths of uh, dealing with two very, very sick, you know, sick, dysfunctional daughters. Um, there are times when, you know, we'll we'll be up to our eyeballs in <laughs> in little girls sometimes and just, you know, just be tired at the end of a day and my husband will just look at me and say, what would you have given, you know, 10 years ago? What would you have given, you know, to have a three-year-old want you to read the same book for the 47 millionth time, you know? Just, it really has helped um it's funny, you know, as dark as things were, um, that makes the, the most mundane things that much better, you know, or just, you know, having my older daughter six minutes away and, you know, I'm being so proud of her and just being so, um, you know, involved in her life, uh, it makes it that much sweeter because we very easily could have lost everything. I feel like this is a perfect spot to end our discussion today. And um <clears throat> but I hope you'll come back again down the road and and talk some more. We didn't even get onto the topic of yoga and um <laughs> you are a, a yoga rock star. So that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but Mary, thank you so much for opening your heart and sharing with our bubble hour listeners today. Um I know it's hard. I know it was emotional for you and um but I also know that you're willing to go there because of all the people that it helped. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, I, anytime, Jean, anything I can do for you or for, for anyone who needs, you know, needs a, a soft, a soft place to fall or a sympathetic ear. I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm just so grateful. I, I, I jump at the chance to give back. Um, Mary's blog is Life Without Vodka Rocks. If you search that, you'll find her. Um, If you have feedback for Mary and you'd like to get your thoughts to her, you can email them to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that they reach her. And um, I think from both Mary and I, we thank you for listening. And um, until next time, everyone, please take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Thank you.